You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. In evangelicalism, the trained theologians too often, in my opinion, lean towards essentially being apologists. They're protecting the theological system. They're addressing the system, and this is how it hangs together. And trying to defend the system. And trying to defend it. It essentially like saying to someone, why do you think the Bible is inerrant? And their answer is, because it has to be. Right. It's like, that. well, that's not an argument. Yeah. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Today, we're talking about inerrancy. At the end of the day, if we want to ask the questions, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? It's a topic we have to talk about. Yeah, it keeps coming up and uh, it's not beating a dead horse. It's it's a real live issue for people. I think especially a lot of the people, Jared, who listen to our podcast, not all of them, but I think a lot are still, they're in that process, maybe beginning that move from the orientation that biblical inerrancy gives them you know, a sense of things making sense to that place where like, it's, I don't know, I don't, don't see it that much anymore. And I'm a little afraid for thinking about it and and moving to that disorientation phase before they move on to a, you know, reorientation phase. So it in, the, in other words, it keeps coming up. It's like probably, I don't know, it may be the most common thing that people are bringing to the table. So we just want to talk about it in our own little way here. Yeah, so let's start with some definitions. Mm-hmm. Let's bring some clarity to that, because maybe some people have never heard of inerrancy. Uh, I asked this question on Instagram, you know, if you don't hold to inerrancy, what was it that you were clinging to? And I had, there were some responses that said, what's inerrancy? So, yeah. why don't you give it well, a, a well, shot? Well, we can, we can, there's different people who have defined it differently. Right, right. And, and maybe just, just to back up a little bit before we get into that, uh, just, you know, the title of our episode, The Risk of an Errant Bible not an inerrant Bible, the risk of an errant Bible. What's at risk for people? And just, you know, an errant Bible is sort of an interesting way of putting it because I remember, um, you know, a while back, years ago, in a discussion with someone about, you know, me seeing some contradictions in the Bible and things like that and sort of trying to put it rather gently. And and he was a rather strong inerrant, a good guy, but a rather strong inerrantist. And he said, oh, so you're an errantist. And I said, no, I'm not an errantist because I don't even recognize the validity of the distinction. Like, these are the categories we should be living with. Because I don't, I simply don't see inerrancy as something that sort of flows from the pages of the Bible. So, that's, I mean, that's, that's sort of what, you know, the whole idea of an errant Bible to me is just not helpful. But there's risk for people, and we want mm-hmm. to get to that. But maybe first the definition, right? So, 
Yeah. What I mean, what what do you have, Jared? I mean, I think there's different ways of getting at it, but do you have one? Yeah. Well, I was looking up things because, I, and I, I'll let you because you've interacted more with what we'd call the the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was what's this, that, Jared? This conference in 1978. A conference. These top. Okay. I probably shouldn't put air quotes. I was going to say quote, <laughs> He's got air quote, quotes. scholars uh, who came no, together. Prom- let's say prominent evangelical scholars, yes. Yes. many of them theologians, systematic theologians, right, and, and biblical scholars as well. Yeah, so they have this long statement, that's what they call it, on biblical inerrancy, and it, you can look it up online and read it if you really want to get into the, to the definition. But they say, Holy Scripture is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches, which means being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And I just want to make a nerdy comment about that. That last line about it matters what the Bible says about history uh, and acts of creation, not just salvation. Um, That's a response to the Catholic version of this, which came out in the early 60s in the Second Vatican Council, because they say, the Catholics would say, the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error, that truth which God wanted to put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. So, the Catholics sort of hedged their bets a little bit and narrowed yeah. it to matters of salvation, but the Chicago Statement was like, forget that. Yeah, it's going right for the jugular. Right. And, and it's it's not simply, you know, the Bible can be trusted to teach me about what God is like and things like that, which is itself a thing to be discussed, because there are a lot of funny things about God in the Bible, but that would be fine. But it, it really extends it to matters of science and history and that I think that's the kind of thing that people struggle with. I know, like um, the Barna report that came out a few years ago about why evangelicals leave the church. One of which is like, yeah, they deny science. I'm like, I can't, I can't deny some of that stuff. So there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening, and that statement I think summarizes well, sort of the standard evangelical statement on biblical inerrancy that some evangelicals will quibble with. Mm-hmm. Like, not every person who says they're an evangelical will believe this right down the line. For, for instance, a lot of most British uh, oh, right. evangelicals, if they would call themselves evangelicals, wouldn't hold to this This idea. is a very American statement. There's mm-hmm. no question about that. I mean, I know British evangelicals who study evolution. So, it's just, you know, but I, I think the framers of this statement are giving a very tight, non-negotiable sort of definition of inerrancy that maybe strategically they felt, I'm just conjecturing here, like we have to make it ultra tight because people are going to want to stray from this. So let's make sure it's really, really tight. It covers all our bases. So, so the, I think there's sort of an emotional, tactical dimension to this kind of a statement. Yeah, still. well, we definitely want to get to that yes. emotional side. But oh boy. Yep. I think we need to root this too in, in some church history because I know for me growing up, it was taught to me that, well, this is, this is the way the church has always believed about the Bible. And I would kind of say, you know, I I forget who said it, maybe Tony Jones or Brian McLaren or someone at some point said, you show me someone who calls someone a heretic and I'll just show you someone who doesn't know their church history. The idea that modern American evangelicalism is the faithful witness, the through line that really Christians have believed for all time is just not historically true. It's yeah, just I not mean, accurate. That really 
it, it seems to be unaware of how theological constructs and theological language and concepts they don't stay the same over history because people change and you know if you're located in certain places in the, in the world you may think differently than other places if your skin is white or your skin is black or brown you you're you're going to have different points of view not across the board but just you know who we are as people and where we are socially located economically located all those kinds of things that actually affects how we think about god and how we read the bible and it's it, it is rather um unguarded a statement to suggest that well the church has always believed what we happen to believe or the church has always rejected you know a non-literal reading of the adam and eve story and uh, first of all that's not true second of all we have other kinds of things before us today that maybe Calvin didn't have or Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody, they didn't have things in front of them to deal with. So the question is whether we're going to engage Scripture uh, thoughtfully within the context that we live and breathe or whether we're going to simply look past all that and just sort of go back to some pristine time where everybody believed exactly the same thing about the Bible. Well, and, and with that, I don't think we can underestimate the impact of modernity, rationalism, yeah. the Enlightenment on we – can't, we can't go to a pre-Enlightenment way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so, the categories that we're going to place on ancient writers and thinkers about the Bible are always going to be anachronistic. It's always going to be putting onto them categories that they wouldn't have been dealing with. And yeah. that's hard for us because within that framework, we now think about things like brute facts or facts apart from community or uh, current relevancy. Like, we want standalone facts. Just these facts. Just the facts. Right. right? Yeah. And that's just – that's – to put that on the ancient readers of Scripture is, again, it, like you said at the very beginning, is it true or not true that they read it this way? You can't really even answer that question because they didn't mm-hmm. have those categories. They didn't have those categories. And, and we do, and that's – well, actually, yeah, not we, all yeah. of us do. Some people do. But, uh, you know, I, I think part of what is going on here, too, the, the language of inerrancy equates a belief in an errant Bible, an inerrant Bible – with faith in God. And I think that is where people begin to really feel pressured because I'm starting to question some things about what I've been taught about the Bible. Does that mean I'm also questioning God? The Chicago statement is very clear. The answer is yes, you are. God only speaks truth, which means God speaking in Scripture is truth. And therefore, our job is to sort of just believe that. And uh, and again, that's I, I don't want to use... Um, sort of polarizing terms, but to me that's really leaning more towards a fundamentalist statement of the Bible. And I think evangelicalism, generally speaking, is much more open to some of these conversations, although I think the ceiling is still pretty low. Yeah, well, and that brings up something I think that's worth, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but this assumption that the Bible is God's Word, I think conflates, it confuses those categories, so that when we talk about the Bible, we're we're making that synonymous with God. Right. And so, when we use the phrase that the Bible is God's Word instead of what the Bible talks about, which is that Jesus mm-hmm. is the Word of God in some sense, mm-hmm. the Word made flesh, I, I do think that's a big part, even in our language, when we talk about, you know, God's Word, how do you, you can't separate God from God's Word, and so, basically, the Bible is God. 
Right, right. And, and now the Old Testament does talk about, you know, thy word is truth and things like that. Mm-hmm. There's a famous book we read in seminary, Jared. That, well, not famous, but within certain circles. But, you know, the notion that the prophets speak God's word to the people, which is true. Uh, sometimes right. they don't agree with each other. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. one thing to think about. But so I, I guess for me, you know, before we get to some of the why it's attractive and why it's so hard to process this stuff. But for me, one of the things that really gets to the the heart of what I'd say is the problem of inerrancy is that the beginning is that, listen, the Bible is the Word of God. And that gets freighted with all sorts of really philosophical assumptions, like, well, if that's, if that's the case, then it's going to be accurate. It's never going to give a falsehood about history. There will be simply no contradictions, because God doesn't do that sort of thing. Right. And then, you know, okay, that's the Bible you have, but then, again, forgive me, you read it carefully, and it, you, you just come up like, wait a minute, there are two creation stories. <laughs> you know, right. you know uh, right. Deuteronomy and, and Exodus don't say these laws the same way. In fact, they say them very differently, and they're not really compatible. Mm-hmm. These are not secrets that are sort of hidden someplace. These are things that people have read and thought about for a very, very long time. So now you have the problem of sort of, you know, I guess the technical term is an a priori, right? right. It's something you start with. That's like non-negotiable. Well, another right? way of saying that is when you – it's it essentially like saying to someone, why do you think the Bible is inerrant? And their answer is because it has to be. Right. It's like, that. well, that's not an argument. Yeah. And that's kind of the assumption – they're starting with the they're assumption starting, it has to be. It has to because be. Because God is X, Y, and Z. Right. So, when you ask why isn't – you're not looking at the evidence and data within the Bible itself. Right. You start with the presumption, which you is that a priori, yeah. that it has to be. So, now I go find the evidence to support what has to be the case already. And whatever evidence you find to the contrary is – again, I don't want to be reductionistic, but it's either ignored or cleverly maneuvered. Uh, as a friend of mine says, sort of, it's like alchemy. You're creating things to sort of make things fit. Well, I, I always laugh because when I was growing up, you know, there was this book called, I think it's Archer's Book of Bible Difficulties. Uh, uh, yeah, Gleason Archer, who, yeah, uh, yeah he and, was and I always think prominent evangelical. If you have to have an 800-page book. Yeah, several uh, volumes. <laughs> wow, I didn't know away. there were so many problems there. <laughs> exactly. I never would have noticed this before. Exactly. Right? Okay. So. At some point, you got to think, okay, well, maybe my framework's off if it takes 800 pages to get rid of the, quote, problems. See, I would have I, I written a book like that, and I would have just made it as long as possible and said, weird stuff the Bible does. No, weird stuff that our Bible does. Right. Our Bible does yeah, these Why do you pose it as right. difficulties or problems? See, that's just it, because the a priori is like the Bible has to be a certain way, and he, well, here are Bible difficulties. Let's solve them to sort of match our a priori commitment to what the Bible is, rather than yep. maybe more a bottom-up approach, which is like, I'm just reading these things, and I'm noticing a tremendous amount of diversity. I'm noticing um, biblical authors who don't agree with each other. I'm noticing a um, an old-world perspective on things like whether the earth is flat or not, you know, things like that, or where rain comes from. I'm, I'm noticing um, stories that have such clear parallels in ancient Near Eastern literature, none of which we would say is historical or anything like that. And and in other words, I, I you know, I would I would want to start with a view of the Bible that God is not out of the picture, but I'm not going to presume what God or can or can't do. Right. Right. So that's a way of thinking about words like revelation or inspiration if we want to do that. But. Yeah, and this is totally anecdotal, so I don't mean to make an overgeneralization about these fields, but in my experience, 
my interactions with theologians, systematic theologians within mm-hmm. the evangelical tradition versus my interactions with biblical scholars. Even within the evangelical tradition, you have this much more of a, a commitment to these kinds of inerrantist claims from the theology side because yes. they start with who is God, what kind of God is this? Mm-hmm. They already have those categories, and then they go to the Bible, and they right. try to make a coherent whole, and the challenge with our Bible is it's diverse. So, if you're trying to make this unified whole out of it, you, you got to do some editing and chopping up, whereas for biblical scholars who just sit with the text, they see this diversity, mm-hmm. and then their view of God comes out of this eclectic mm-hmm. you know, set of, of texts that have different views of God. It's, you know, I've, I've sort of lived that. You know, the um, I think it's true. Again, some people will be mad at us for saying this, but generally speaking, I'm going to I agree with you that in evangelicalism, the trained theologians too often, in my opinion, lean towards essentially being apologists. They're protecting the theological system. They're they're sort of what what you would call in the Roman Catholic tradition canon theologians. They're theologians addressing the system, and this is how it hangs together. And trying to defend the system. And trying to defend it. And then it's the biblical scholars who, I mean, this has happened so often, Jared, in the history of evangelicalism, and to, you know, it's been difficult for people that you're, you're taught to think about Scripture in an evangelical setting, whether a church or a seminary or a college or whatever, and then, you know, you're the best and brightest in the group, and they want to send you to graduate school to study Bible, and then you do. And you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, my goodness gracious. And I've seen people, and myself included, it took me about – I remember my first semester at Harvard, and it was, I was in my kitchen in Somerville, Massachusetts, staring at the refrigerator thinking, I'm not sure if Abraham is a real person anymore. You know, And it's, nobody shoved it down my throat. Just I have the, the data and sort of ways of thinking like, okay, I understand why – People say the things that they say, and then you come back in an evangelical or conservative context, and people are like, well, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. You used to be so straight and narrow, and now you've got all these weird ideas. So biblical scholarship can be the problem that theologians have to sort of correct, and they write things about how, you know, I don't know, just these, these young, bright people, they go off to graduate school, and they just, they're not holding on to their faith. They come back liberal. Why does that keep happening? Every single generation, again and again, why do people keep losing their jobs? It's it's because they're seeing things. You know, this is the deconstruction thing we talk about. Right. They're seeing the cracks in the system from within, right? Not from the not outside attacks, but they're seeing the problems. And um, you know, I just it's it's a it, it's causing a problem that keeps repeating itself generation after generation. Well, and the insidious part of that for me is whenever you have a pre-commitment to a system, and then you have this data where people learn, and then they fall away from that particular interpretation or system. Rather than questioning the system, what we do is we have character attacks, and we start questioning Mm. the motives and intentions of the people. And that's what was hurtful for me, Mm -hmm. because I was warned and in, in my, my story is I was warned in undergraduate about going to a particular seminary because there were particular professors there who weren't towing the party line. Oh. But it was said in terms <laughs> of basically 
you know, the biblical studies department. I think department. he's talking about me, folks. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how much to say or not say, <laughs> but yes. Um, so, I was warned. I had professors who actually sat down with me and said, basically, you're like the brightest, right? I won the Jonathan Edwards Prize in my department in undergrad and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, but be careful. Maybe you should go to one of these seminaries because I hear that this particular seminary has started basically listening to the biblical scholars over the systematic theologians, and that's a dangerous path. Yes. And so, I, a good Enneagram 8, I completely ignored them and did whatever <laughs> I wanted, and here we are. Here we but, are. But the, the, here we are, the Bible for normal people. <laughs> but the hurtful thing for me was, as I went through that, how many people in my life couldn't even touch the system of inerrancy? Yeah. It had to be, I had some sin in my life that I was no longer willing to sit under the authority of the Bible, so I needed to find a way out. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're just trying to be cool, or you're just compromising with the world. Those were the arguments. Right. And that's where it gets, for me, I get pretty animated about that, because yeah. that starts messing with people's uh, feelings of self-worth That's what screws people up. That's right. right. It's not the ideas, it's, it's almost the manipulation afterwards. In order to protect my own system, right, I'm right. choosing this theological system because it makes me feel safe over the heart and soul of actual human beings. Well, I mean, let me push that a little bit, maybe by bending it to the right a little bit. But the thing is that, you know, we all do have systems, right? right? We, and and right. I have them, and I don't, I'm not even aware of my, my systems are, you know. They're probably so deeply ingrained in me, I don't know what they are. But we all have systems, mm-hmm. but here's the thing. Some systems just are bad. They just don't make sense. And it's not, um, you know, a baseless attack, but some systems I think are better than others. But almost regardless, if we can hold those systems more gently than we do, because we make the system, it really is equating the system with the mind of God. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. And you can believe in a Bible. I don't think the Bible really just makes mistakes. Fine with me. Um, can we talk about some of these other things when you're ready? Yeah, sure, we can talk about Okay, that's great. That's not a problem. But it's when it becomes – I guess we're talking about power now, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, let's get to that. The, yeah. the, the power of this over people's lives, it's, it can be very, very destructive. People can believe what they want, mm-hmm. right? And some may wind up having, let's say, more traditional – or I'm not going to say that because I don't think inerrancy is a traditional view. I think it's a more modernist, conservative view of Scripture. Right. But, uh, you know, people can have that with and hold on to it with a sense of, of uh, it not being maybe the full story. But the power thing comes into that, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to maybe articulate in a different way what you're saying. It's kind of there's this matrix because I also don't want to miss what you said at first, which is some systems are just bad. So, we have kind of, if we have the X and Y axis, we have kind of on one side bad systems that just don't hold up to the evidence and the data. And then we have good systems that try to make sense of the data that we have. But then on the other axis, we have how we hold to those systems. Mm -hmm. That's for some people, it's provisional. Like, I get it. My system could change at any time. My ego and identity and my sense of safety and connection to God isn't dependent on this system. Mm -hmm. And for other people, all those things are tied up and they become kind of jerks. When mm-hmm. you start poking at it, they get really sore. Uh, and that's where I think the power dynamic for me is, you know, I don't think it's malicious and I don't think it's intentional in a lot of cases, but if, if you have the book that unlocks the mysteries of the universe and then you go to school and learn how to unlock those mysteries and then you get to be in charge of people in this profound universal way who don't have those keys, 
I feel like that's just a recipe for mm-hmm. abuse of power. And yeah. people with power don't like to give it up. And so this is a system that is really hard to penetrate and question in some of these traditions. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. And that abuse of power, I have seen uh, be enacted very gently, mm-hmm. right? And and yep. and I, I I don't think necessarily deliberately by people, right? right? I mean, that's just it, isn't exactly. it? They're they're not always bad people. Some people are just real bad, manipulative, power hungry people. But a lot of people aren't. Mm-hmm. They just they're part of a system where that values the people with knowledge who can defend a particular way of looking at things. And they truly believe that this is true, and they simply cannot countenance the possibility that others would question it. And so they go into hyper mode to sort of lock that down and uh, not really entertaining the possibility that those others may have – they may have legitimate reasons for saying, I just don't believe the X, Y, or Z anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where no matter how nice a person you might be, if you have a totalizing theological narrative, a structure that just explains everything, mm-hmm. 
you can't let go of any of it. And what do people do? The, the, their options are, I'm like, I'm not even a Christian anymore. That's, that's where people go with that. Well, because, again, in my tradition, that was the scare tactic of basically, well, you can make a choice. You can either go down the slippery slope of questioning inerrancy and eventually be an atheist, or you can be an inerrantist. Mm-hmm. In an effort to keep people in the fold, they end up excluding people because once it's black or white and black doesn't make any sense anymore, we have to go to white mm-hmm. instead of seeing that there are many other variations within right. that within that journey. But I think that does bring up for me this question of why people cling to it so hard yeah, because right, you, right. you uh, mentioned this. You know, I think one thing for me is that it, it's a shortcut and it finally gave us what we'd been searching for for about 400 years in modernity, which is a feeling of certainty about our knowledge of God and how the world works. Yeah. We, we spent from Descartes, I think, therefore, I am, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to question everything I think I know so I can have the surest foundation and build up from there so we have these certainty blocks that just build and build and build and oh my gosh doesn't that feel so good mm-hmm. in this nasty and brutish world right. and we tried that for 400 years and it completely failed and we kind of split some people became qu- questioning whether that's even a pursuit worth happening we might call those quote postmodernists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we have people who double down and right. we had a doctrine like inerrancy that allowed them to double down. Right. They got to say, right. oh, we have it, finally. We don't have to go through all that hard work of philosophy and science and metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Figure. We just have a book. Yeah. It was simple. It was there all along. Well, and, and I think along with that, this, this journey that the church has taken over the past few hundred years, um, some, some type of doctrine of inerrancy is, let's say, more excusable in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, because there's just a lot of stuff happening that we didn't really know about in terms of the scientific world and whatnot. And so much of Protestant theology is rooted in things happening several hundred years ago. Then, when you get to, let's say, the 18th century, and geologists are saying, the Earth's really, really old. And then you have not just Darwin, but others talking about common descent. And then we can throw Einstein in there and maybe why not quantum physics while we're at it. But the scientific advances have shown the inadequacies of an older reformational way of looking at the Bible. But I think if your identity is a church, and I think this describes most Protestant churches, when your identity is rooted in a reformational paradigm, a way of thinking that's really rooted in the Protestant Reformation. It's hard to adapt, and that's exactly what people are saying. We need to adapt to changes that that you know the framers of of uh, of our tradition could not possibly have been aware of, right? So, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, I don't know. We're we're not sure about that because that could make you be liberal. I, I okay. I mean. I'm going to try to trust God. I don't know where it's going to go. All I know is that I I can't make believe that these things are not, whether it's evolution or whatever, it doesn't matter. I cannot make believe those things don't exist. I have to sort of account for them somehow. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, Rohr's tricycle or Wesley's quadrilateral, where historically in the church, the things that brought authority were diverse. We had tradition— uh, we had experience, we had reason, and we had the Bible. We had all these things, 
And then the Reformation, they just like quadrupled down on the Bible and mm. they cut the, all those other legs off. Yeah. And they put, they put all their money in that basket. And it's yeah. like, okay, and now that's – and it just over time, it just became this untenable – this thing. thing that just, yeah, that just... It had to hold everything. Yeah. Because right. we couldn't trust authority anymore. I mean, tradition. We couldn't trust experience anymore. And so, we just put pressure, too much pressure on this book. And for whatever reason, it reminds me of uh, these sociological studies that talk about how we've recently put so much pressure on married couples. Like, we used to have these diverse social networks. And now it's like your spouse has to be your best friend and your like partner mm-hmm. in raising yeah. kids. And it, it just puts so much of a burden on this one relationship when we used to have this network. Yeah. That's kind of how I think the Bible is starting to buckle under the weight because mm-hmm. because of what it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the data is there to say it's, it was never intended to be all of that and it can't do it. And it's hard to look at this buckling as good news. It, I, I'm gonna. I'm telling you now. It is good news. It's a good thing to have happened, mm-hmm. uh, and even if it's painful, maybe because it's painful, it's a good thing. But the buckling is a good thing because it is showing the inadequacies of our mind to be able to capture all this. And it's fun to think about it. That's why it's you know it, thinking about these things and holding on again with open with an open hand instead of closed fist, as they say. That's a really good discipline because you can be open to change. But if you've learned your whole life, the whole point of faith is never to change, to stay rock solid. You know, I just, I mean, again, not to be snarky, just read the Bible. Just see how people are changing in different views and how people at one point in time in the Old Testament don't think the same way as people at previous times. And, you know, that's how the Bible actually works. That's the book that I wrote a couple of years ago. That I talk a lot about that stuff for good reason. The Bible itself is giving us permission to approach God with open hands instead of like a closed fists because our theology is so rooted in our context and who we are and what's happening, you know? Well, what you're describing to me is having a deep humility. Mm-hmm. It's possible to say that God doesn't change. You can still hold to that if that's your framework. And yet, all you, all you need to do is, like you said, let go of the idea, though, that my opinions about God can't change. Mm-hmm. It's like and the what's, Bible. there's some humility there to realize, like, yeah, my views on the Bible and God, as I grow up, surely they change. My, my views on all of the world change as I grow up, as I learn more, as I develop more. To think that all we need to know about God we learn in Sunday school when we're in first grade, mm-hmm. it just doesn't match the rest of my experience about what it means to be human. And so, I would say, uh, jumping off of that, um, I don't – I would say this, inerrancy – is not born out of humility. And I just made people mad. But I'm not saying it's arrogance. I'm saying it's not born out of humility. And I think it's born more out of fear. Fear. Right. Yeah. And so here, a little a quick story, quick story here. Um, a few years ago, I was um, having lunch with a friend of mine who's been on our podcast, Kent Sparks, who's also a colleague of mine at Eastern. And we were talking about an errancy and why it's so difficult for people to sort of, even though they sort of see it, it's difficult for them to move outside of that orbit and like what's happening. And I, I said something like, well, I think they're afraid of just losing that thing that helps them make sense of the world that they live in. And, and Ken said, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's they're afraid of what happens to them after they die. They won't be sure of that anymore. 
And I said at that point, this is, you know, 15 years ago or so, I said, no, that sounds too specific to me. But the more I've thought about it, I think Kent is right. I think he's onto something. So I think we need to go there. Like mm-hmm. what what is really at stake for people in what's the risk of an errant Bible? <laughs> what is the risk of thinking differently about the Bible, not as a cosmic rule book, so to speak, but as something that is much more complex and messy? Yeah, I think it's a good insight from Kent because if we think about the ways in which Christianity has shrunk in America. It's really shrunk around, you know, we kind of trimmed the fat about how we live our lives or justice, matters of this worldliness, and it's really become how do you get to heaven when you die? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it touches on that exact kind of death anxiety right. is that's what people are focused on at, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so, it just gives credence, I think, to that theory that a lot of all of Christianity has been narrowed down to how do you get to heaven when you die? Because that's the most important. I mean, that's where you're going to spend eternity. So that's what we need to focus on. And I'm so scared of death. And that's mm-hmm. just a very American thing to be scared of death. And then you kind of fuse it with our faith. And it, it makes sense that mm-hmm. our view of the Bible and God and what we focus on in our faith becomes fixated on that. There, it's a great story that you have if it explains what happens after you die, and that you will see loved ones who have passed before you, right? And gives you certainty about it in a realm that logically makes no sense to have certainty about. Right. I mean, there are a couple things in the Bible, but again, see, it gets down back to to the (laughs) Bible. You know, to be with Christ is better by far, Paul says, Mm -hmm, although, mm -hmm. Paul, could you flesh that out a little bit, what you're talking about? There isn't a lot to go on. I mean, the Old Testament has a place called Sheol, which is sort of like Hades in Greek mythology, that clearly the New Testament writers don't believe in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even even notions of death and afterlife in the Bible change, which we can't get into all that stuff, but it's, it's, it's not so much the Bible, it's how people have been taught to think about the Bible and faith that right. leads them to connect the dots. Exactly. If the Bible is wrong about anything, if there is a single error, I cannot trust it to tell me about ultimate reality, which is what happens to me after I die. Mm-hmm. And listeners here might be familiar with Ernest Becker, who I'm just starting to get into, but I know plenty of people who have read him re- very deeply, and critiques of him as well, because nobody's perfect, but how much a fear of death really does motivate us to write narratives that claim to really explain all that. And I do wonder if at the end of the day, I'm beginning to think that this is something that really might drive people, even like, well, no, it's not that. It may be under the surface and you're not feeling it or seeing it. It may be something, a a deep down factor of the human predicament, so to speak, that we're conscious of our demise. You know, um, okay, just a quick thing. In the Bible, <laughs> here's an heresy. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, after that bird song, you know, the Pete Seeger thing, and, you know, after everything, there's a season which is always misunderstood. Anyway, right after that, it talks about how God has put eternity into our hearts, but we don't know what will happen. And People sometimes say, oh, that's a, oh, God's put eternity in our hearts. No, no, this is horrible. It's a frustrating we're, and <laughs> we're conscious of the passage of time. And you know, at the very beginning of the book, this is this is a great book for talking about death, but um at the beginning of Ecclesiastes in chapter one, like I don't know, verse twelve-ish or someplace in there, but um we don't remember those who have passed before us. 
And when we're gone, people will forget us the way we've forgotten everybody else. Mm-hmm. This is death anxiety right here in the Bible, and he's trying to work through it. Well, there's an explicit passage in Ecclesiastes where he says, who, who knows what happens to yes. us when we die? Right. Are we going to go up or are we going to go down like the animals? Exactly. Yeah, we don't know that. Clearly, people are talking about it, mm-hmm. but he's like, yeah, we don't know that. He's really like an empiricist here. He's like a rationalist. You know? <laughs> but that's just it. I mean, that's that has all to do with maybe the setting of Ecclesiastes. But the thing is that death anxiety is I think there in the Bible itself, which is fascinating. But I think it's people are living it, and so you just hold on for dear life for the system that answers all those questions for you. And it's a real thing. It's an existential terror. Well, and I wouldn't actually separate your response from that in that our fear of death seems to be just an amplified version of our fear of the regular everyday uncertainties of life. It just mm-hmm. happens to be kind of the ultimate unknown and uncertainty. Yeah. But I think it still ties to this idea that it it satisfies a deep longing we have for control in an uncontrollable world and for safety in a dangerous place. And mm-hmm. our death anxiety, I feel like, is just an amplified version of that. Right. And, and so, I don't think they're that different. I think we're all looking for that thing. I know for me, as someone who likes to be in control, that's what inerrancy did for me. It's mm-hmm. like, it gave me, okay, if I can master this book, which is by my system's admission, the the contains all of that I need to know about the world and God and everything. Mm-hmm. If I can master that, I can get rid of this anxiety about the uncertainties we face every day. Yeah. By the way, quick commercial here. Um, if you guys have Netflix, uh, the third season of The Sinner which is a really good series, but the main character basically has all sorts of issues with death and death anxiety. And it's like it's like they've read Ernest Becker or something. It's, it's really freaky how that's happening at the same time. But I, you know, I remember many years ago, a friend of mine gave me a CD back when we did CDs of Richard Rohr, some lecture that he gave. But he said something there that has stuck with me about this. He says, Life is about learning to let go, like every day, so when you get to the real letting go at the end, you're ready for it. You've been doing this your whole life, right? It's perfect. And to me, that is a way of facing the, the, maybe the death anxiety that is making uh, the stronghold on inerrancy so appealing. It's a way of facing it, saying, no, maybe the way of Christ is to let go of that need for certainty and just let go of of not just that, but everything that we hold on to to create meaning in our lives. Not leave your family and stop having hobbies, but you just – you don't put your trust in those things. You just let go. If they're there, they're there. If they're not, they're not. You have a lot of money. If it goes, it goes. If it's there, it's there. And so when when you die, you're ready for it. Oh, yeah, I've been doing this my whole life. Not a problem, you know? And – but, you know, that's a very different way of looking – that's so outside of the system that created inerrancy in the first place. And that's why this isn't just an academic exercise. Like, right. oh, inerrancy is logically wrong. I think it is, but that's not even the point. The point is how it affects people's lives um, emotionally yep. and spiritually. And relationally. Relationally, socially. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even physically. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of letting go. <laughs> we, we'll have to have a whole episode on letting go on death anxiety and fear of death. I think it'd be great. But how does letting go of inerrancy change how we read the Bible? 
how what's what's this you know you mentioned at the beginning there are people who are stepping into this disorientation of what the bible's not inerrant yeah. like i'm falling down the rabbit hole here but what is changing and letting go of that do for how we read the bible i think that's a good question Which to end hard. on i think it's hard because if it's not doing what i've always been used to it doing what's it good for right, right. the the thing i was going to it for isn't there it can't deliver so now what's what do we do with it well i mean i think it's really difficult and probably not wise to give sort of a formula for this but what i would say is that instead of reading it for processing information to put into the certain slots of the system, I would I tell people to think in terms of being curious. Like think back in your you know, some people can't even read the Bible anymore. So I say, okay, listen, then don't. Just leave it alone for a while. Yeah. Just take a break. I mean heaven's sake, God's fine with it. I know that for a fact. Um I know that inherently. <laughs> so um no but I, I, I do trust that it's okay for us to sort of just be honest and say, I just need a break from church, I need a break from all this stuff. But to come back to the Bible and ask yourself, in my Bible reading days, was there anything that I was just really curious about? Anything that I wanted to learn more about? So you approach the Bible with an attitude of curiosity to learn, not a sort of mandate to master it and to use it as some sort of another brick, and again, in that totalizing narrative that we've created for ourselves. And then uh, you, you might begin asking questions and seeing things you haven't seen before. And at that point, I'm like, you know, welcome to the history of Christian and Jewish interpretation. This is what's been done. You know, so it, I think it's it, – there's no formula. Don't read it if you don't want to. But if you do, if you want to come back to it, don't have an agenda other than, you know, I've never read a minor prophet before. I'm going to read Amos. I'm going to just not have – Anything on my plate, I just want to sort of read it and just see what happens. And if you are more curious, this sounds like really trite advice, but I suggest just get a good study Bible. That maybe there are notes in there, maybe explaining when Amos lived or something, and just just it gives a framework and and to start reading the Bible from an angle other than a fundamentally apologetic angle. That's the thing to get to. And but but if you're not ready, I say don't feel guilty about it. Oh yeah, I, and I, I think just to reiterate what you said is this is not. There's no one step, two step, three step process here for what you do. You you're on your journey. Do what you need to do. So I think we're just speaking from our experience. Yeah. But uh, just to piggyback on what you said about the study Bible, I also think you know a lot of people who ask me what do I do every time I pick up the Bible, I just read it the same way I did. I said, well, don't read the Bible. Maybe get that other voices in there. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of what we do on the Bible for normal people, hopefully, is introduce people right. to say, go read a, a Will Gaffney and read th- how she interprets the Bible. Mm-hmm. See how her framework works. Right. Read a, people who write about the Bible. Don't mm-hmm. Maybe don't read the Bible. Read about the Bible mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. And you can start to imitate like, oh, well, I want to read the Bible like Richard Rohr. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, kind of get familiarizing yourself with other ways Wh- Which of makes sense because the reason – people can get into a rut isn't because of the Bible. It's because of the way they've been taught to look at the Bible. And, well, there are other people looking at it differently, and they're not crazy people in the minority. Right. They're actually just pretty pretty mainstream and diverse. I mean, there, there isn't just one way of reading right. the Bible. If you're not an inerrant, that's the whole thing. You're an, er- you're an errantist, that aren't you? That Not an inerrantist. Like, I can't describe any of the people we've ever had on the podcast as errantists. They just like, uh, yeah, whatever. And they're just looking at it from a different angle. 
that um, has right. a, the weight of some tradition behind it, or mm-hmm. just you know um, very thoughtful people who have you know theologically or philosophically thought about this stuff, or and, even just like you said, thought about it from the fact that their skin color is different, right. or their mm-hmm. socioeconomic status is different, and right. those, there's value in just having different contexts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think that's how it sort of you know this this hopefully will change. Letting go of inerrancy will change how people approach the Bible. You won't know what to do at first. I just say, expect that. That's like normal. Like you have, you have no other model to work with, and maybe watching or listening to other people how they do it is probably a good step forward. I think. Yeah, um, and and we you know we talked about this, and I will leave it here as a as a broad statement. But treating the book, uh, the Bible, as a book of wisdom mm-hmm. rather than a, a rule book is also helpful. Which for me means I go to it. With my own value set, mm-hmm. my own vision of the kind of person I want to be and how I want to live my life. And then I let the Bible challenge that or I let it mm-hmm. encourage that. But I don't go to the Bible for that, to find that framework. Right. I go to other books, mentors, experiences, mm-hmm. my church community, you know, mm-hmm. my past. I have a lot of other people who help inform that, but ultimately that's my choice. And then I go to the Bible as, as a wisdom tool Mm-hmm. For how I can live that out, the Bible's not going to hand that to you. Right? It's like, yeah, no, you're going to have to work this one out and really be a human being here. Oh, really? Yeah, it's okay to do that. Darn. No, it's not. Not only is it okay, it's like pretty unavoidable if you think about it. But the Bible is there as you know the book of the church. Speaking just of Christians at this point, and it's it's that uh, that partner in the journey, so to speak. You know, and and it's. You know, it's not the same as me or my experience. It's it's a book of the church. It's been around for a long time. But we we partner with it, and at times we interrogate it, and other times we're refreshed by it. And we have a very – it get used to having a complex relationship with the Bible, which should never be equated with the relationship with God. Those are two separate – they're not the same thing. Well, as we, as we wrap up, I think it's worth mentioning – that we're talking about this not to convince anyone or to debate this idea of inerrancy or not inerrancy, but really it's for people who are reading the Bible maybe again for the first time, and it's, like you said, it's bubbling up Mm -hmm. that this thing that they used to hold to just doesn't make sense anymore. And hopefully this has been a helpful conversation for how to process that and maybe how to navigate through it in some way. I hope so too. hope so too. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you, folks. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We also want to give a shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They're the reason we're able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Joshua Edson, Nick Dom, Leroy Mercado, Clinton, Megan Hood, M.A. Kennedy, Sam Oldham, Jordan, Rebecca DeFord, and Elizabeth Peters. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, or for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be a part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thanks as always to our team, executive producer, Megan Kamick, audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt, creative director, Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard, Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spate, and web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. (whistles) 